Our call to confession this morning comes from Isaiah 12. In Isaiah 12, we read this. It says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This happens to be one of my uh, favorite passages in the Bible, uh, one that I have uh, committed to memory a uh, long time ago. And, and, and I love it uh, because of the immense amount of hope that it proclaims. Uh, if you've read through Isaiah, you know that Isaiah is a wonderful mix of hope and judgment and exile and uh, promise. It's, it's, it's all intertwined uh, there in the prophetic word of God. And I love especially um, verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Uh, it, it, the truth is that, that, that God is angry at sin. Right? God is angry at the rebellion of his people. He's angry at them because they have forsaken his covenant. In fact, in the beginning of Isaiah, he calls them, you rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah. He is angry, and rightly so. It's, it's a righteous indignation. It's not that God's feelings were hurt. It was that his people have failed to do what they've been called to do, and so his anger rightly falls on them. And yet here in Isaiah 12, it says, although you were, you, you were angry, your anger turned that you might give me comfort instead. Instead of anger, which I deserve, you give comfort, which I don't. And, and, and the question, verse 1, like begs this question, where did the anger turn? Where did it turn to? Because it can't just turn into nothingness. It, it can't just turn into, to, God can't sweep it under the, the proverbial rug of heaven. The anger has to go somewhere because it's righteous anger. It's, it's right retribution for sin. So where did this anger turn so that God can give comfort? And of course, we know the answer, the the anger turned onto Christ. God turned his anger and he poured it out on his son so that through his son, he can extend his comfort to his people. This morning, uh, Calvin and I were, were, were driving into church and we were listening to a rather famous podcast by a well-known Baptist seminary president. I'm not going to say his name. And he takes questions uh, at times in his podcast. And and he took a question from a young girl, and this young girl had this heartfelt question, and, and she said, um, uh, she talked about God going into the promised land with his people, and he says, I'm going to send my angel ahead of you, but I'm not going to go with you for your stiff-necked people who refuse to follow my way. And she was worried about God being angry with her, and about, about God not hearing her prayers, and about God leaving her side. Can God do these things? Can he get angry at me? Will he leave me? Will he not hear my prayers? And, and honestly, I'm not, I'm not saying this as, as a slight, but I found his answer to be so unbelievably uncomforting. He, he, he didn't address the issue. This little girl said, is God angry with me? Will he be angry with me? Will he leave me? And he said, well, the fact that you're worried about offending God shows that you have a soft heart, and that's a good thing. And his whole answer did nothing to answer the question of, is God angry with me? Is he angry? When I sin, does he get mad? Is he angry? And will he walk away from me and go, you know what? It's enough. I'm done. I'm tired. I'm leaving. And he didn't address the question, but Isaiah 12 does. No, he's not. <laughs> he's not angry. He's not angry with this anymore. His anger's been satisfied in his son so that we receive his comfort. 
And so he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never pour out his anger upon us because it's been satisfied in Christ. And so as we come to confess our sins, we don't bow our knee before an angry God whom we are hoping to placate. Right? We don't bow our knee before an angry God and we say, hey, listen, please, if I, if, I, if I confess this sin, if I confess that sin, will you be happy with me? Will you be satisfied with me? We bow our knee before a gracious Father who loves us and comforts us and forgives us and receives us and heals us. And so we have every single reason to know that he will hear our prayer, that he will forgive us and that he will receive us and that he will not be angry with us. And so let that rest upon our hearts. Let that truth rest upon our hearts as we do come before God to confess our sins. And not just our sins. Let me encourage you, not just our sins in a general way. Yes, we have all sinned. But as we come before him and we lay before him particular ways in which we have failed to keep right covenant with our God, let us know that he is not angry, that he loves us, and that he forgives us. And so if you are... Uh, able this morning, would you please kneel with me as we confess our sins? I want to ask you, invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. We're going to be looking at 32 and 33 this morning, and I sent out another email uh, because we've been looking at larger chunks of Scripture and just kind of encouraging you as a church to just read through them uh, in preparation for Sunday uh, so that you have a kind of overarching idea of what's taking place in the text so that we don't feel the need to have to hit every point, or more importantly, I don't feel the need to have to hit <coughs> every point that we'll be able to move through it uh, faithfully. This morning we are going to read Genesis 32 in its entirety uh, before we, we dive into the text together because it's, uh, it is the central uh, text to this scene that's taking place here in Genesis 32 and 33. And I want to say as a disclaimer on the front end, uh, if you were at the men's breakfast on uh, Saturday, some of this will be a repeat. Uh, Canaan did an amazing job on uh, Saturday, and he did an amazing job stealing most of my thunder from today. He just took it all away, left me with the scraps, but so be it. We will, we will do our best. But if I, this is a plug. I, it's actually a plug for Sunday school and a plug for uh, uh, men's breakfast. It's a plug for everything that we're doing outside of Sunday morning. There's so much opportunity, great opportunity, to get fed and encouraged and to fellowship uh, whether it's ladies' events that are taking place, whether it's the men's events, whether it's Sunday school, um, these are wonderful op opportunities outside of the, this Sunday morning, uh, which is essential, uh, time of worship to gather as brothers and sisters and be encouraged. And I know the men that were there on, on Saturday were really encouraged uh, by Canaan sharing uh, just about suffering. And uh, we continue to pray for Canaan and Lauren and trust the Lord to them. And we are thankful to see how the Lord has been at work in you in the midst of this. Uh, was, was really encouraging, brother. Thank you. Uh, let's look at Genesis 32 together. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Menahaim. And Jacob sent messengers before Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God, my father, o God of my father Abraham, 
And God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me with the mothers and the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as a sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong and where are you going and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are presents sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought... I may appease him with a present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He then took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, uh, saying, For I have seen the face of God. I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him, and he passed Peniel limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat of the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified at the reading of his word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, <clears throat> we come before you this morning thankful, Lord, for your word, <clears throat> asking God that you would give wisdom, Lord, that you would open our eyes, our minds, and our hearts to hear and to see and to receive your truth, Father. God, I pray that my, my words would be effective, Lord, that you would guard my tongue, that I would say only that which is helpful for us, and that in all things Christ would be glorified, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So you look at chapters 32 and, and, and 33, this, this encounter of, of Jacob and Esau as Jacob is returning home. Uh, these, these chapters really begin earlier in chapter 31, uh, verse 3, where God calls on Jacob to return home. And as we said last week, that's possibly the most pivotal verse uh, in that kind of 20-year span where, where Jacob is with Laban, that after uh, that time had passed, God comes to Jacob and he says to him, now... Now is the time for you to return to the land of your family. And as we mentioned, or maybe I, I, I did or did not, it's, uh, it is a wonderful call for Jacob. 
right? It is, it is, it is a call that is tied in to the covenantal promises and blessings of God given to Abraham, to Isaac, and now to Jacob. But as much as it is a wonderful call, as much as it is a timely call, as much as it is truly an exciting call on the life of Jacob to return to his home, it is a call that is full of fear and uncertainty, at least on the part of Jacob. As we read through chapters uh, uh, 29 through, through 31, uh, the text never directly mentions it, but I, I believe it's safe for us to assume uh, that there has been little to no contact between Jacob and his immediate family, uh, and probably no contact whatsoever between Jacob and his estranged brother Esau. So all that Jacob knows over these past 20 years is that he was sent away from home because of the murderous intentions of his brother, and the fact that his mother never sent to retrieve him from Padan Aram, which she said she was going to do earlier in chapter 27, uh, would imply that those murderous intentions have not abated, that Esau is still dead set on exacting revenge on his brother for usurping not only his birthright, but his blessing. Now, uh, and now Jacob is, is called by God to return uh, to the scene of the crime. And, and all he knows is that a murderous brother is waiting for him. Now we get affirmation of the, the fear and the uncertainty in the life of Jacob as we look at the beginning of chapter 32. If we look at verses 2 through 7 of chapter 32, it says, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. And he instructed them, You shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I've sojourned with Laban. I've stayed until now. I have donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Right? The fact that Jacob is taking such great pains to plan out this return home is, is obvious on his part. He knows that a return home is a, is a return to his brother. It, it implies or entails a, a confrontation with Esau. That which he ran away from, he can no longer run away from. He's actually now moving towards it. And so he takes great pains. He, he sends messengers ahead and he says, listen, communicate to my brother how God has blessed me, how I have flocks and female servants and male servants and I've got donkeys and I've got oxen and I've got sheep and I've got goats and I've got all these things. And, and the clear intention is, is that he wants to communicate his wealth so that he might also communicate to his brother, I have much to offer you in order for you to be reconciled to me, to, to show mercy to me. I have much to give you if you will in turn let your, your murderous intentions and your hatred and your anger go. And in fact, we see that play out later on in the chapter where Jacob divides up his, 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 uh, his camp and he, he sends gifts, drove after drove after drove, so that Esau is, as Esau is coming, he just encounters gift after gift after gift after gift with the clear idea being that hopefully, hopefully this will calm him. Hopefully this will ease the tension that exists between myself and my brother. Uh, the problem is, the problem is, is, is the message that Jacob gets back, right? So, so Jacob sends these messengers ahead and he says, go to my brother and tell him uh, that I'm coming and I'm coming with wealth. I'm coming with gifts. I come bearing gifts. And his, his messengers uh, return and, and it's, safe, it's safe to say that, that he doesn't necessarily get the, the, the message he was hoping to get. Right? What he is hoping they will say is, hey, listen, he's super excited. Can't wait for what you've got. Uh, in fact, he's standing there with open arms, like send it all, donkeys, goats, cows, whatever you got, Jacob. I'm so excited to see you, but I want the gifts first. But, but that's not what he hears. His messengers come back and say, hey, listen, your brother, uh, the hunter, 
skilled with a bow, the big hairy guy who, 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 who thrives in the wilderness, who thrives off of conflict, who gets high off of the thrill of the hunt, oh, he's coming your way with 400 men right now. And you can just imagine like all the color leaving smooth Jacob's face. This is not at all what he wanted to hear. He did not want to hear that his brother is coming with 400 men, and yet this is the message he receives. And the result, what it, what it does to Jacob, the text says, is he is filled with great fear and great distress. He, he's literally, he's undone by this. He does not know how to think. He does not know how to prepare. He does not know how to respond. He does not know what he is going to do. So he's got this call home, and yes, it's exciting, and it's great, and it's grand, and it's part of these covenantal promises, but it is a call into the fearful unknown. It's a call into confrontation with his brother. But it is certainly a call which God has placed on him. But we also, what we see in, in this whole kind of narrative unfolding is that this isn't just a call uh, full of uncertainty and fear, right? but it's a call given under the banner of God's promises to Jacob. Right? It's a call that's given under the banner of God's promises to Jacob. And, and in particular, what we see in Genesis 28 and, and then later again in Genesis 31. If we go back to Genesis 28, 15, as Jacob is leaving the land, being sent out, and, and he's preparing to enter Padan Aram, he has this, this vision, this angelic vision. And in 28:15, God says to him, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. So as he's getting ready to enter this, this sojourn, this 20-year sojourn, God comes to him and he declares to him, I am with you, and I will be with you, and I will bring you back, and I will not leave you until I have done what I said I will do. And then as Jacob is preparing to leave Laban, God again comes to him and promises him the same thing. So that later in, in chapter 31, it says, And the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. And so standing over this call to return home, this uncertain call, this call full of fear, this call full of trepidation, this, this call that entails meeting his brother with 400 men, standing over this is the promise of God, I will be with you. I am with you, Jacob. I will not leave you until I have done what I said I would do in you. And so the question really is, how do we see that promise of God's presence and protection kind of fleshed out here in this text, in, in, in this real-life situation, kind of where belief and life's collide, right? God will be with me. Here comes my murderous brother, 400 men. How, how do we see it worked out? in this text. And, and, and I think uh, what we see is, we, we see as we look at chapter 32, we see that God both affirms the promise, further affirms the promise to Jacob in, in 32, and then Jacob, Jacob takes that promise and he applies it to his situation in such a, a, a wonderfully beautiful way. And so as we look at 32, there's, there's two ways that, that we see uh, the promise clearly affirmed, this promise of presence God's presence with Jacob in, in chapter 2. And, and the first one is right there in the very beginning, verses 1 through 2. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. All right, so Jacob is, is leaving Laban, and we have these, these two verses that almost kind of seem like an, an abrupt insertion. 
right? They just, they just kind of come out of nowhere, and, and, and it might seem kind of like out of place, but this, this vision of angels that Jacob has as he's leaving Laban, Laban is, is, is timely, and it's, uh, it's, it's poignant, and it's appropriate, right? So as he is leaving Laban, he has this angelic vision uh, of, of angels in camp, and he encounters them. And, and we remember that uh, Jacob's entrance into Padan Aram was, a, was accompanied by what? An angelic vision, right? Uh, uh, Jeff preached on this as, as he's laying out in the wilderness by himself. He, he sees heaven open up. He sees a ladder, and he sees angels ascending and descending upon the ladder. So God says, I'll be with you, and then he has this angelic vision as he goes into the land, and now God says, I'll be with you, and as he's leaving the land, he has another angelic vision. Right? The, the meaning is clear. Jacob, I'm with you. <laughs> like I said, I'd be with you. Here's a vision to confirm that. I said I'd be with you, Jacob. Here's a vision to confirm that. I am with you, Jacob. The second way that we see the promise confirmed here in the text uh, and affirmed in a, in a much greater way is where, where Jacob wrestles with God. Uh, look with me at 22 through 32 uh, again, chapter 32. This scene here, 22 and 32, Jacob has already sent the, the gifts ahead, and, and now he's taken his children and his wives and his, his female servants, and he's sent them across the fjord of the Jabbok, and, and he, he is alone again by himself. He's alone, just as he was alone when he came into the land. Now Jacob here, as he's leaving again, is alone by himself. And as he's alone, a man comes and begins to wrestle him. Right Now the, the vision of angels that Jacob has, that's, that, that, that's a, a, a vision of a mediated presence of God, right? Uh, like it, it, it's, yes, God is presence, but, but present with him, but it's, it's mediated. There's these angels. But, but here in 22 through 32, it's not mediated. It is immediate and it is tangible, right? It, it is a man who comes and wrestles with Jacob. Now we can only, I, it, it's fun sometimes, it's brain candy, right? Or maybe it's entertainment for myself too. Just imagine how does this scene unfold? Because this is a real scene. This really took place. This isn't literary uh, mumbo-jumbo. This, this is an event. And so you've got Jacob alone at night, and, and what happens? All of a sudden, a guy shows up, and there's no, hi, how are you doing? There's no high five. There's no, hey, man, where are you going? Got some water, got some food. It's just like an immediate wrestling match. Like, Jacob just sees this guy come, and the next thing he knows, he's wrestling this guy. This guy initiates the conflict. He initiates the struggle. He brings Jacob in to this wrestling match. And we can only imagine Jacob as he's wrestling, kind of going, what are, what are we doing? Like, what is going on? Now, we know Jacob's a strong guy, right? We learned that earlier. There's a large stone, covers his cistern, right? Jacob rolls that stone away. Uh, so Jacob is a strong guy. And so he's involved now in this, this wrestling match. And, and, and if he's uncertain about what's taking place in the beginning, he certainly starts to become aware of the significance of this event. To the extent that when day breaks, he refuses to break off the match. He refuses to let go. He holds tight and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now the significance of this struggle, and, and, and we know, I should say, we, we, we know it is, it is God whom Jacob is struggling with. Right? It is the Lord in, who has engaged him in this, this combat in the wilderness. Right? The significance of this struggle and really the meaning of it and its purpose, I would argue, is, is rooted 
in the prayer of Jacob that's recorded earlier in verses 9 through 12. That is to say, we can't understand why God shows up and initiates this conflict with Jacob uh, until we read and understand what Jacob is praying for, right? So, so look back at verses 9 through 12 with me real quick. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me with the mothers and with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as a sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. As we look at this, this prayer, there, there's a couple things that stand out to us. The, the, the first is uh, that, that Jacob really is, appears to be a changed man. Right? This isn't the prayer of an arrogant, conniving usurper. The, the, the Jacob that we met earlier uh, as he's coming out of the womb and as he's initiating with his brother this scheme to get his birthright and then he's colluding with his mother to steal the blessing from his brother, that Jacob is cunning. That Jacob is conniving. That Jacob is a Jacob. He is a usurper. This Jacob who has been worn down and fashioned by God through 20 years of service to Laban is a different Jacob. He's a humble Jacob. He's, he's, I would say he's a faith-filled Jacob. He looks to God and he says, I, I am not worthy of the least of these things that you've given to me. I don't deserve anything that your steadfast love has poured out upon me. Jacob knows he has flocks. He knows he has herds. He knows he has servants. And he doesn't attribute those things to his wisdom, to his cunning, or to his ability. Remember his kind of interesting breeding techniques that he used to, to, to kind of shift the, the, uh, the, the nature of the flock earlier. Jacob doesn't go, well, good thing I figured that out. He understands that God's blessing has been poured out upon him. And he looks to the Lord and he says, I'm not worthy of any of this. I mean, we also see Jacob's changed humil uh, ca uh, character and humility even in the way that he's addressing his brother. Right? He, he writes to him, he says, my Lord Esau, your servant Jacob. I think in doing this, Jacob is, is kind of echoing the, the covenantal patience and humility of Abraham. And one of the things we see in Abraham's life is that Abraham doesn't make strides to push forward to grasp and to take hold of what he knows is his covenantally in God. He doesn't march into the land and immediately go, this is my land, and start to murder everybody and kick them out. He's patient, and he's waiting on God to fulfill his covenantal promises to him. And so Jacob now is who, who usurped, who reached, who went after, who tried to take, now waits. Because he knows that, that Jacob isn't servant to Esau, and Esau isn't lord over Jacob. Jacob is lord over his brothers, and his brothers are his servant. But there's been a change in this man. There's been a transformation that's come about through 20 years of sanctification training that God put him through with Laban so that this Jacob now is a very, very different Jacob. So we see Jacob's change and transformation, not only the words that he uses, his humility expressed in his prayer, but even the way that he addresses his own brother. The second thing that we see in this prayer, and really I would argue the primary thing that we see in this prayer, is the way in which Jacob applies the covenantal promises to his situation. Remember, Jacob is praying here because he knows Esau's coming with 400 men. 
So Jacob is driven to his knees to pray because he knows that his brother is marching his direction with 400 men and he is terrified. All Jacob can think in his mind is everything is done and finished. Everything's done. My brother's going to come. He's going to murder me. He's going to murder my wife, my children. He's going to take everything because I took everything from him. And so now he's going to come and exact his revenge on me. And so Jacob is driven to his knees in prayer and he does something. He does something which Textually speaking, we have not seen a patriarch do to this point. He takes the promises of God, God's very word to him, and he uses that as a means of prayer to God. Essentially, he takes God's words and his promises to him, and he says, God, you said this, now do this. You said this, now fulfill this. I'm terrified, I'm afraid of my brother, but you said you would do good to me. You said you would make my offspring multiply as the sand of the seashore, as the stars of the sky. You said you would be with me. You said you would bring me back. You said you would never leave me. So do what you said you would do. And it's the most wonderful and profound thing to watch him take hold of God's word and then hold God to his word. To say, God, you have spoken, so do what you said you will do. And so when we come back to this wrestling match, what, what, what I think's taking place here is God is so graciously, mercifully, kindly coming to Jacob, and, and the prayer becomes tangible. Right? The, 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 the longing to hold God to his word becomes tangible as God invites Jacob into the struggle. So that as he is physically holding on to God, as he is struggling with the Lord in the midst of his anguish and his fear and his uncertainty, he is working out the reality of his prayer in this match. I won't let you go till you do what you said you would do. I won't let you go until you bless me. And I think there's something so profound, so helpful, so meaningful, and so purposeful for us in that. Because we see this happen multiple times throughout Scripture. Uh, I, love, I love the example of, of Moses, right? Moses is, is, he starts off like gung-ho, right? Like guns blazing. Literally, if he had a gun, he would have blazed it. Instead, he killed that guy some other way, struck him over the head, did something. But literally, he comes out guns firing. Like, I'm going to lead my people. I'm going to love these people. I'm going to kill the Egyptians. Hey, brothers, let's all get along. And like, who are you? And he gets kicked out to Midian to go watch sheep, to be humbled in the wilderness. And then God calls him back, right? Heard the groaning of my people. It's time for you to go and set my people free. And, and what does Moses do? Does he go to the, the war chest, you know, break out the 30-06, load up and say, let's do this, God. Let's ride. No, he's like, no, I'm not going. <laughs> I, I can't do this. And what's his, main, what's his main reason for not being able to do it? Bible trivia. Why does Moses say he can't do it? I can't talk. I can't, I can't talk. I'm not going to go stand in front of Pharaoh literally the king of the earth, and go say, hey, I know you got this free labor. Uh, let him go. Huh? I, I can't do that. My tongue's slow. I, I, and, and three times, God comes to me. Three times, it's like, I, I, I can't. Eventually, God's like, fine. You know what? Here, there's Aaron. He's, he's going to do the talking, right? 
But then as the, as the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness, like, what do we find Moses do three times? We find him stand before the king of heaven and earth. <laughs> the creator of all things on a mountain filled with smoke and thunder and lightning. And God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm tired of these people. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And I'm going to start a new people with you. And what does Moses do? He says, no, you're not, God. You're not going to do that. Because that's not your word and that's not your promise. That's not what you said to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And what will people say about you and your word if you brought these people out here to kill them in the wilderness? What will they say about your promises, God? So here, the one who couldn't talk to Pharaoh now stands on a mountain before the very presence of God and says, you keep your word, God. You said you would do this and you're going to do this. And I don't think for one minute God is upset at that. I almost imagine God is just rejoicing as he watches Moses declare his word back to him and say, you are a faithful God. Keep your word. And so just like Jacob, God brought Moses into this struggle. Because believe me, like put anybody else on that mountain, any one of us, if God said, I'm going to make a people out of you, we'd be kind of like, huh, not a bad idea, God. I, th I think you've stumbled onto a good one. Yes, make a people out of me. Brilliant. That's a struggle. That's a temptation. Moses is brought into it, and what does he do? He wrestles with God, and he says, no, 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 you keep your word. You keep your word to your people. We see it as Canaan did so wonderfully unpack for us. We see it in the book of Job as well, as Job struggles with the Lord in the midst of his suffering, being tempted to declare that he is unrighteous, and Job refuses. No, I'm not. I'm not, and God's going to answer for why he has come after the righteous in this way. We see it in the, Prover or in the prophets. We see it multiple times throughout Scripture where God invites his people into a struggle to take him at his word, and I think the Lord delights in that. And so we, too, are called to take God at his word, to know his word, to believe his promises, to trust in them, and then in the face of uncertainty, in the face of fear, in the face of death, in the face of suffering, in the face of hardship, in the face of whatever comes our way in life, we have this ready weapon at our side to go, no, God, you said. I'm nervous. I'm afraid. I'm terrified. I'm oppressed. I'm scared. I'm dying. Lord, I don't know what to do, but you have said to take God at his word, to rest, really, truthfully, rest in his promises. Not as some platitude, not as some kind of like thing that we hang on the wall or a little, a little calendar that we put on our desk each day we flip off, but really trusting in his word to the extent that we are ready to go before the Lord and wrestle with him and say, no, you said this, so do what you have said, Lord. And I think God delights in his people doing that. He delights in his people, taking him at his word, resting in his promises, wrestling with him through prayer, learning what it is to trust him, to rest in him, and to believe in him. And what we see unfold in this story is that God does keep his word. As we go into Genesis 33, Jacob meets Esau, and the meeting does not go as he expected or anticipated. Esau runs to him, hugs him, kisses him around the face and the neck, welcomes his brother home. And we read in Genesis chapter 13, or 33, I'm sorry, chapter 33, verse 18, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. 
The fear and the uncertainty is undone by the promises of God, and God keeps his word. I am with you, Jacob. And Jacob comes safely to the place that the Lord had determined to take him. And so God invites us to take him at his word because God keeps his word. Now, as we close this morning, I, I want to come back for just one moment uh, to that, that promise that God makes, that promise, that banner that hangs over this call home, this, this, this call of, I will be with you. Just like God said in Genesis 28, he says, I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. God promises his continual presence with Jacob. And, and this morning, Arnie read from, from two passages, Old Testament and New Testament, that I, I think in a, in a, in a, in a beautiful way um, highlight what that means. Jeff mentioned a couple weeks ago my, my favorite poem, uh, which is uh, Footsteps in the Sand. Uh, Annie and I actually recited that to each other at our wedding. Um, and it's tattooed on our backs. Uh, I hate that poem. I despise it. You know, you know the poem. And if you like it, shame on you. Uh, I'm not pulling any more punches. If you like that poem, shame, 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 shame on you. Read the Bible. Uh, <laughs> hey, Riley. Uh, the, the, the poem is, you know, God, I, I get to heaven, and there's sand. Evidently, we're on the beach all the time. And I'm walking on the sand, God, and there's two footprints of sand, and God's like, oh, that's when I was next to you, walking with you. And then, God, when there was only one, you left me. Where did you go? And God's like, no, that's when I carried you, my child, because you couldn't walk. And you're like, that's the dumbest thing ever. Uh, that's not what it means for God to be with us. That, that, when, when, when God says, I will be with you, it doesn't mean he's like next to us on the journey just to make sure everything's all right. And that when it gets rough, right, when it gets difficult, he steps in, right? Like the, like the driver's ed teacher when you're a kid, he had a break on his side. Right? So just like, you know what? Hey, you're doing great. Oh, nope, not there. <laughs> Whoo! Luckily, he had that break, right? That's, that's not what God's doing. It's not like he's got his driver's head break ready to push it when things get too nasty. What does it mean for God to be with us? Well, God doesn't just make that promise for Jacob, right? That, that promise, like all God's covenantal promises, reverberate through generations. They move. They flow downstream so that we see God promise to be with his people. He is with Israel as he's leading to the promised land. I mean, think about Moses writing this, right, to the people as they're moving towards the promised land as a source of encouragement. As God was with Jacob, so God is with us. He has taken us to the land of promise. He has already got it for us. It's ours. He is with us. Let's go. And then in Nehemiah, Nehemiah, as Nehemiah has come back after the exile, he's rebuilding, uh, recounts the history of God's people, recounts the history of the exodus, bringing them out of the exodus. And, and the part that I want to focus on in particular is, is what, uh, what is written in 18 and 21 of Nehemiah 9, right? So God's presence with his people, God's, uh, uh, I will be with you, presence with his people. Uh, look at 18, not, Nehemiah 9, 18 through 21. If you're not there, I'll, I'll read it for you. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercy did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the day did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct and did not withhold your manner from their mouth. You gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And I was reading that and I was thinking about, God, you said you would be with your people. You said, I will be with you. So what does that look like? Well, what it looks like, at least in part, is that his presence among his people is not dependent upon his people's faithfulness to the covenant. And, and that is, that's, that's amazing, right? Like, like we know eventually, biblically, when God sends him into exile, his presence departs. It leaves the temple. Ezekiel sees this, right? But in this moment here, their covenantal unfaithfulness, like, 
like three days out of Egypt, it's not really three days, but you know, like two weeks out of Egypt making a golden calf, God doesn't go, all right, I'm done, I'm leaving. I'm out. Forget it, try to find the way on your own. Good luck. He says, no, he's with them. He stays with them, even in the midst of their rebellion, even in the midst of their sinfulness, his pillar of smoke stays, his pillar of fire stays. He gives them his good spirit. He leads them, he provides for them, he feeds them. He is with them. And this is very good news for us. Because the truth of the matter is, oftentimes we're no better than, than that wilderness wandering generation. Our, our faithfulness oftentimes is, is measured in moments <laughs> as opposed to days and weeks and months. We struggle, we sin, we confess our sin this morning. I often do what I should not do. I say what I should not say. I think what I should not think. I believe what I should not believe. Our covenantal faithfulness is, is weak in our own strength. And yet God has promised his presence with us, and it stays with us. He stays with us. He does not leave us or forsake us. He knows far better than we do the depths of our own depravity, and yet he loves us, calls us to himself, remains with us, his presence with us, so much so that in Matthew 28, what does Christ promise at the end of the Great Commission? What does Jesus promise? Behold, I will be with you to the end of the age. This isn't some new thought. <laughs> this is Jesus doing what God has always done, being with his people. So God is with us. He is for us. He has promised good to us. He will not leave us or forsake us until he has accomplished what he promised in us. And what has he promised? Romans 8, to transform us into the image of his son. And so we have great reason to wake up every morning with hope. Wake up every morning knowing that our God is with us, not walking beside us in the sand, but he is with us and in us and strengthening us and moving us and equipping us and blessing us and loving us and caring for us and forgiving us and accepting us and receiving us. Every second, every moment of every day, he is doing this because of his son, Christ Jesus. And so whether fear or uncertainty or oppression or suffering or hardships, whatever comes, we know that our God is with us. And that's not some platitude that gets us through the day. It is a fundamental, foundational truth without which we could not face the day. Without it, we would have no hope for the day. But God is with us. And if God is with us and if God is for us, then who can be against us? For we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, church, I want you to rejoice that our God makes many and great promises. I want you to rejoice that our God calls us to himself to trust in those promises, to hold him to his word, and that above all things, our God has promised to be with us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word. We praise you and thank you for the hope of the gospel. We praise you and thank you what is true in Christ Jesus. Because of Christ, because of his death and burial, resurrection and ascension, Father, we can claim these promises as ours. We can rest in your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We can know, Father, beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are with us, you are for us. And so, Father, encourage us in your word. 
Encourage us to take hold of your promises. Encourage us, Father, to trust in you. And Lord, for any, any at all, who are not trusting in Christ, who are not looking to Christ, Father, awaken in their hearts faith that they would reach out, grab hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and live in the power that Christ provides. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I speak these words of Christ over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let us go this week resting in the great and many promises of our God, knowing that he is ever with us. Would you join me and raise your hands in song as we go into a new week with the Lord's blessing. Reminder that we have choir practice happening now before the fellowship meal. So, so that we can eat on time, please vacate. Choir members, stay here. Thank you. <laughs>